welcome to Montrose Bible Church. We're so glad you've chosen to join us as Pastor Matt and other church leaders challenge us with a message from God's Word. This morning we continue our sermon series from the book of Matthew. As Jesus once again responds to the criticism of the religious establishment. The last time he rebuked the Pharisees for suggesting that his power to cast out demons came from Beelzebul, the prince of the demonic realm. After watching Christ perform one miracle after another, that was their conclusion. That Jesus was at work building Satan's kingdom rather than that of the living God. Now they used some flawed logic to get there, of course. That's what they said not realizing that they would be held accountable for every word they spoke against the Lord's anointed. It's called blasphemy. The uniquely outrageous sin of intentionally and defiantly speaking evil against the living God, mocking Him and defaming His holy name. In the Jewish construct, it is an offense of the highest order Deserving of the highest penalty, up to and including death. That's how serious a thing it is to speak ill of the Lord. But the Pharisees just couldn't help themselves. Disparaging his name, his character, and his ability all the more with their next so-called request. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 12, and follow along as we read God's Word together, beginning in verse 38. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. May God bless the reading of his word. Have you ever met someone so set in their ways that Seems nothing is going to change their mind. No matter how persuasive the arguments, 
how clear the information, how well documented the discovery, their opinion on the subject will not be swayed. It can be rather frustrating to engage in conversation when even tangible proof is ignored in favor of some previously held position. Well, that seems to represent the ideology of the scribes and the Pharisees here who are so determined to discredit Jesus, they have ignored all of the facts leading up to this point. Oh yeah, I know the blind have received sight, the lame have walked, and the lepers have been cleansed. I've seen deafened ears opened and the dead raised back to life. But when are we going to see something truly miraculous? Can you imagine? seems to me if all of that is not enough to convince you, then you don't want to be convinced. You don't want to acknowledge Christ's authority. You don't want to bow down in worship. You don't want to resign your will. That was the prevailing sentiment of these first century religious leaders. As they demanded another sign of attestation from Jesus. And it remains true for some of you today. You're chasing after a sign because you refuse to believe. Take a look back at verse 38. And some of the scribes and Pharisees said to Jesus, a Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. Now the request made by these religious leaders to see a sign is really more of a test, a challenge, a demand even, for Jesus to prove himself as the Messiah. For the sake of the people, it was presented in a way that seems respectful enough, but it was voiced with very questionable motives. Well, something Mark makes clear in his parallel passage. According to his retelling, the Pharisees came out and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And Jesus knew that. Even their reference to him as teacher reeks of sarcasm. Because this group of scholars considered no one outside of their own ranks worthy to hold that name. No, friends, they weren't asking for a sign in hopes of one day believing in Christ Jesus. They were asking for a sign so they would have one more reason not to. So, having already witnessed certain miracles certain works of power, certain dunamis in the Greek, the scribes and Pharisees now ask for a semeon, a sign. Of course, the kind of sign they were after is not specified, but it must have been of the absolute and extraordinary variety. Perhaps they wanted him to make the sun stand still, change the color of the sky, Uh, spread a choir of a thousand angels across the heavenlies. 
They already saw him heal lepers, cast out demons, and raise the dead. This additional sign would have to be on a much grander scale. But would that really change the heart and mind of these unbelievers? I doubt it. Now, as James Boyce once said, if God decided to give the whole world a sign today about Jesus, he could arrange the stars in the sky in such a way that they would spell out the message, Jesus is my only begotten son. But if God did that, people would just shrug their shoulders and say, I wonder what astronomical disturbance caused that chance alignment of the stars. He's right, you know. No one would believe a message written in the sky any more than they believe the one written in our Bibles. Because just like the scribes and Pharisees, we live in an evil and adulterous generation whose heart remains hardened not for a lack of evidence, but for a lack of faith. That's the real problem here, friends. And why so many of us are still seeking a sign from heaven today. Whether it's evaluating the color of the moon, keeping track of Israel's political alliances, or reading books about a boy who went to heaven and came back and later recanted. (laughs) Some of you are fascinated by these things, and I cannot for the life of me understand why. Why is this not enough? I mean, I get why Pharaoh needed a sign. And I get why the Baal worshipers could benefit from one. But now that Christ has been fully revealed here, what more sign could we possibly need? Now, we've all had those conversations with folks trying to justify their unbelief. They say, once I see God do this, then I'll believe. But that's not true. Once you see God do this, you'll just keep on testing him. Isn't that what we learn in the conversation between Abraham and the rich man who died an unbeliever? The man said in Luke chapter 16, I beg you, Father, that you send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Oh, but the man said, No, Father Abraham, you don't understand. If someone goes to them from the dead, It shows them something miraculous, something incredible. If you would just go and show them a sign, then they will repent. And Abraham said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead right there in front of them. The rich man, Pharisees, You and I today, we don't need more signs. 
we need to believe what we have already been given. For as we are told, only an evil and adulterous generation seeks after such things. Are you there? Chasing after a sign because you refuse to believe. In fact, you have a sign greater than Jonah, and yet you refuse to believe. Now take a look at verse 39 again. Jesus said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Well, instead of performing a miracle to satisfy the scribes and the Pharisees, right then and there, Jesus points them to the miracle that will provide all the validation and attestation that anyone in this world will ever need. He's speaking, of course, of his own death and resurrection. Still very much a future event when he first spoke these words, but 2,000 years past as we consider them this morning. That in the same way that God raised Jonah back to life, After spending three days and three nights in the fish's belly, God will raise the Son of Man back to life after being buried for three days in the earth. Now, before we get into all the particulars of this, there are a few things that we need to stop and consider. First, this statement assures us that Jesus did believe in the historical legitimacy of Jonah's seafaring account. If there were any doubt that Jonah had been literally swallowed by a fish and kept alive in its belly, that event could not have been used as a type of Jesus' death and resurrection. So we know that was Christ's understanding, that the events we read about in the book of Jonah are meant to be taken literally as a matter of the historical record. Second, we must address what appears to be a discrepancy in the timestamp that Jesus provides for Passion Week. We have no problem, I assume, acknowledging Jonah's three days and three nights in the fish's belly. But Jesus was not buried for three days and three nights. So was Christ wrong in his prediction? And if so, why would Matthew repeat it? Matthew, writing several years after the resurrection took place. Well, rest assured, Jesus was not wrong in laying out the crucifixion timeline, nor did our gospel writer perpetuate a lie. No, in the Hebrew construct, time was viewed quite differently. According to the Jewish Talmud, that is the collection of rabbinical thought, Any part of a day is as the whole. 
which means three days and three nights is not a time period of 72 hours necessarily, but some small part of three different days. And thus to Matthew and his original audience, there is no contradiction in phrasing it this way. Jesus was in the tomb Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and so we count one, two, three. The main idea here is not the precision of the time. It's the similarity of the sign, which leads to our third critical observation. We need to understand that the comparison made here between Jonah's experience and that of Jesus, it is not meant to be a perfect parallel. After all, Jonah was wildly disobedient before being swallowed. Jesus was perfectly obedient to the point of death. Jonah was not actually dead when he was in the fish. Jesus did die physically before being buried in the tomb. And thus, Jonah's was not a literal resurrection from the dead, while Jesus coming back to life certainly was. It's not meant to be a perfect parallel, but that's what makes it a sign. A sign is not the same exact thing happening beforehand. No, a sign is something similar that helps point you to another event that will be even bigger, even better, even more significant in the future. And in that way, Jonah's experience was a sign of Jesus. For on the third day, Both of them stepped out of their tombs alive after being delivered from death by the hand and spirit of God Almighty. In 30 AD Jerusalem, that happened. And it's the only sign God is ever going to give you. The death and resurrection of the Son of Man, Christ Jesus. But don't say, if God would just fix my marriage. If God would just give me that promotion. If God would just cure my child of that cancerous disease. Then I would believe in him. No, you wouldn't. No, if you don't believe the rugged cross and the empty tomb, you're not going to believe God for anything. And in that state, you will find nothing but condemnation. Isn't that what Jesus goes on to tell the scribes and the Pharisees in our text? That because the overwhelming majority of them aren't going to listen, they aren't going to repent, they aren't going to believe, even after he conquers death, that the men of Nineveh are going to stand up against them at the time of judgment and condemn them. In one of his most scathing denunciations yet, the Lord tells these self-righteous leaders who thought they were the best of God's favored people that men from the pagan city of Nineveh would testify against them 
at the time of judgment. And what qualifies them to do so? Well, Jonah's rescue was a sign to the people of Nineveh that his message was actually from God. And seeing that his message was from God, they had the good sense to turn their backs, their hearts back to God at Jonah's preaching. As we're told in Jonah chapter 3, the people of Nineveh believed in God. They called a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. And who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. That was the Ninevites' response to Jonah. After seeing what God did to deliver him from certain death at sea, And Jesus' death and resurrection should have brought about an even greater repentance in this present generation. But where the Ninevites listened, most men refuse. So, at the time of reckoning, the men of Nineveh will stand up Walk over to the accused and say, How wicked could you possibly be? How loathsome. How detestable. How hard of heart. To hear the words of that prophet and see God raise him back to life and still you won't believe? Even we're not that callous. And we are the worst of the worst. So what does that say about you? Are you there? Chasing after a sign because you refuse to believe. You have a sign greater than Jonah, yet you refuse to believe. And you've heard wisdom greater than Solomon. And yet, you refuse to believe. Take a look back at verse 42. Jesus says, The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. In addition to the testimony of the Ninevites, evidence against the scribes and Pharisees will also be heard from the queen of the south. She too was a Gentile from a distant land who was not a natural born part of God's covenantal community. And yet she will stand up and testify against the Jewish elite because unlike those insiders who 
plug their ears at the hearing of God's wisdom, she went out of her way to pursue it. That's what we learn about the Queen of Sheba, as she is called, in 1 Kings chapter 10. When she heard about the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with difficult questions. So she came to Jerusalem with a very large retinue, with camels carrying spices and very much gold and precious stones. When she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. So Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was hidden from the king which he did not explain to her. When the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters and their attire, his cupbearers and his stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. How blessed are your men. How blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. She gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great amount of spices and precious stones. Never again did such abundance of spices come in as that which the queen of Sheba gave King Solomon. Also the ships of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought in from Ophir a very great number of almug trees and precious stones. The king made of the almug tree supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house. Also lyres and harps for the singers. Such almug trees have not come in again, nor have they been seen to this day. King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all her desire which she requested, besides what he gave her according to his royal bounty. Then she turned and went to her own land together with her servants. When this pagan woman, her reports of Solomon, the wisdom that he had received from Yahweh, she was desperate to go and see it for herself. Scriptures tell us she came to test Solomon. And in that way, she was just like the scribes and Pharisees we have been reading about. But after hearing him speak forth what were clearly the words of God, she responded in a manner that was quite different. Rather than put her fingers in her ear and refuse to listen, her eyes, her ears, and her heart were opened to the truth. In fact, immediately before professing her faith to Yahweh out loud, the writer tells us there was no more spirit in her. And what a beautiful way to say she believed. There was no more spirit in her. There was no more breath in her. She was overwhelmed and overtaken. The wisdom of God coming from the mouth of Solomon had that profound an effect. So much so that she emptied her treasury as a tribute 
and sang the praises of the one true and living God. That was her experience when hearing from Solomon. So why aren't the men and women of Israel doing likewise when hearing from Jesus? His wisdom is even greater. And yet, they would rather silence his voice than listen to it? Doesn't make any sense. Not to the Queen of Sheba, it doesn't. Not at all. And so after the Ninevites take their turn in front of the courtroom, she will stand and testify against this evil and adulterous generation too. Condemning all those who reject the wisdom that God has revealed in Christ. Do you see? Chasing after a sign because you refuse to believe. You have a sign greater than Jonah, yet you refuse to believe. You heard wisdom greater than Solomon, yet you refuse to believe. And your wickedness will only worsen if you refuse to believe. Take a look back now at verse 43. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there also. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Jesus' final statement in this pericope paints the picture of a positive change that cannot will not, does not, result in lasting spiritual transformation. Perhaps the man cleaned up his life by way of self-help. Perhaps he gave up a few of his vices. Perhaps it was by exercising a demon, as Jesus suggests here. All positive changes, to be sure. But there is no safety No security, no salvation in any of that. That's what Christ is saying to the scribes, to the Pharisees, to those who try the way of self-reformation today. You're like this man who continually kicks out the demons of his life and cleans up his own house, but has no way of preventing the evil from returning. Because... His house remains spiritually vacant. A vacant house, friends, is just begging for some spirit to enter into it. Either the Holy Spirit of God or the unclean spirits of Satan. Eventually, one of them is going to take up residence. If you continue to plug your ears 
Harden your hearts and reject Christ. Even after he has revealed himself to you. And not only will the old evil return. That first demon will invite seven others. In a perfection of evil, so to speak. Causing you to be much worse off than you were before. Peter speaks to that same reality in chapter 2 of his second epistle. If, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, A dog returns to its own vomit. And a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Friends, you can buy all the self-help books in the world. You can hold back all of those curse words. You can clean up your act time and time again. But that's not true spiritual transformation. It's just a temporary housekeeping that leaves you open and susceptible to the next evil thing. Where the people that you care about have to watch you return to your own vomit over and over and over again. For where the Holy Spirit does not live Unclean spirits are free to. And they will make every day of your unbelief worse than the day before. Are you with me on this? Scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus asking for a sign. Claiming the same thing the majority of people would claim today. If God would just do this and show me that, then I would believe. But to the heart of heart, no sign will ever do. If God showed you A, B, and C, you would ask for X, Y, and Z. And once God showed you those three, you'd ask him for something else. The truth is, friends, we have all the proof that we need. In the Word of God, the person of Christ, and the glory of the resurrection. If you will not believe any of that, you will not believe anything that God does, now or ever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts. You know how easily we become distracted, misguided. We chase after lesser things. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for those times we have gone chasing after some new evidence or some new proof when you have already given us everything we need. Lord, you have revealed 
your son Jesus so clearly, so magnificently, how could we stand here and deny it? Only if we have hardened hearts. Only if we are void of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would continue to convince us through the means you have already given. Help us to see it in your word, in your son, in the cross and the tomb. Help us to see it. New every morning if we need to, that we might know that you alone, our God, that you sent your son for our salvation. Help us to know it, Lord, and live in light of its reality every day from this way forth so that you would receive all the honor and glory that you are due. May it be so. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen and amen. Thank you for joining us. I trust you've been blessed by the study of God's Word. For more information about Montrose Bible Church, visit our website, montrosebiblechurch.org. 